Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is the second part of our interview with David Hajo Parsons. In this episode, he chats about the rest of his time in Operation Desert Storm, what he did after his time on the Tomcat, and also his brilliant photography. Remember, you can help the channel to continue putting out regular quality content by becoming a patron via patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, where you receive four different tiers, each having its own benefits. So don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss any future videos. I also want to thank our sponsor, Laco Watches, who were one of the original companies to produce pilot watches for the Luftwaffe during World War II. They produce both A and B dial watches in different sizes to suit all tastes, which adopt the look of times gone by but still satisfied modern demands. You can check out all their models and products via www.laco.de. Thank you. I was approaching 2,000 hours in the airplane. I was very confident in the airplane. And um, I, it was like the culmination of all your training. It's not like I'm a, a warmonger or anything, but, yeah, yeah. you know, I felt like, you know, if someone's going to go, I want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want someone else to go in my place. And um, I can tell you that the first day strike, I was the first Tomcat on the cat. Standing alerts were very pleasurable. And it was just a pleasurable day. And I remember saying the Lord's Prayer and uh, and I remember I wasn't so much worried about dying as I was. Uh, don't let me mess up. Yeah. You know, I've <laughs> yeah. talked to a lot of the guys that feel the same way. I just didn't want to let my my comrades down. And awesome. um, so it was. Uh, but I I flew in the um, during the El Dorado Canyon. I'd seen AAA yeah. a lot, you know, especially at night. <laughs> Can't really see it during the day unless it's uh, the the bigger stuff that leaves a great cloud. Yeah. So that that wasn't anything new to me. There was one of the guys in the squadron that had been in the squadron with me then too, and we were the only guys that had seen AAA except for the air wing uh, commander. So a lot, you know, there was a couple guys made themselves air sick from uh, doing this weaving jink that we did. So to throw off the radar guy to AAA, and you know, I flew with one of them, and I said, you know, you're kind of overdoing it here. You know, it's twenty thousand <laughs> feet. They're not. Yeah. You know, not going to reach us up here. Um, more worried about the Sams, and but we knew how to avoid them. So, uh, it, uh, it, it was exhilarating and, um, you know, just, uh, it was a real challenge. We, we got, um, you know, we've talked about the fighter missions, but the, um, there was an interesting debate that went on during Desert Shield because I had been one of the first, I was the first Rio trained on the East coast in TARPS, the tactical oh, well, aerial yeah. yeah. pod, pod system. And, um, up to then they were training on the West coast in the, it was just coming into the forefront in 8081 and it became um, arguably the first mission that Tomcat saw sustained combat with TARPS missions over Lebanon yeah. where they had to fly because of the cameras were low to medium altitude. They had to fly at 10,000 feet over all, all manner of AAA and the Baca. Wow. And they were, uh, I mean, the, They'd fly a section of Tomcats, and they were picking up pictures of, you know, surface air missiles trying to, trying to get them. But the Tomcat, like o- Oki, I, there's no way I can come close to Oki describing how those engines work. But the A engine <laughs> is a beast. If you get down low, and it's usually the funny thing is most guys don't get to fight it there because our training rules say knock it off below yeah. ten thousand feet, and, um, and sometimes they'll let you fly to fight, but. Uh, one of my first skippers, when we were fighting over Oman, said, you guys got to get used to the airplane down here. And we had a guy from VX4, Paul Miles, that knew all about it. And he kept oh, talking yeah, about yeah. the effect. And so we all went down there and played with it and went, holy cow, 
this, you know, it's like having a turbocharger down there. <laughs> and uh, so those Tomcats had to fly every day. They knew they were coming because they were looking for mortar set, you know, sites, things like that. And um, so that became, and that's where we got, I know that one guy asked a question online about the ALQ-167. When we first got those, they, they modified the Tarps Tomcats to be able to carry an expanded chaff adapter with four buckets of uh, chaff and flares in addition to the two that we already had. And uh, so that, that gave us a lot of um, extra chaff. And then we had um, this ALQ-167, which is his very first style pod. Sometimes you'll say it referred to as the DLQ-3. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they call it the Bullwinkle. And that's this big old pod. Um, that we're worried about Syria and the SA-5, and we're worried about the SA-6. So it was tuned to be able to handle either one of those threats for us because the basic Tomcat doesn't have any capability yeah. uh, against those. So it was a big shortfall on the Tomcat. And when I first joined the community, they said we wouldn't even go over land. Oh, wow. That our job is fleet air defense. You have no business over land because you don't have adequate DCM. You're too big a target. Right, right. And we grew up thinking that, and then all of a sudden, yeah. here they are flying every day over Lebanon, and um, that changed a lot of thinking. So fast forward to Desert Shield, I, the first thing I had, they, we had a planner come out and work with us almost every day from uh, Riyadh, and I kept saying, what about tarps? And they, and they said, no, no, we've got RF4s, all we need, we have SR2s, we, you know, we, we've got all these assets, we don't. We don't need tarps. And and I kept saying, you know, if you do, you need to tell us now because you can't just stash those pods and expect them to work uh, because of the film. You, you have to maintain the chemistry of the photoprocessors on the ship it needs to be looked at all the time. And the film doesn't store well, especially in a humid environment. It wasn't that humid over there. But you got to use the cameras. You've got and you got to use the air crews. And um, I finally convinced the skipper to let us fly some tarp stops while we were sitting there in desert shield. So we started doing some uh, port surveillance down in Somalia. And so we were ready and all of a sudden they showed up and said, Holy cow, we need you guys. And, and one of the neat parts of it was the RF4s needed escorts. We didn't, we didn't yeah, want escorts. We escort ourselves. Yeah. So that, that got us a lot of attention and it, it, it made the inner service rivalry go away because they also need a lot more gas than we did. So when I planned out a mission, the guy came to me and I said, well, here's what we would need. He came back and said, you got it. Every day we need a TARPS mission in the morning and the afternoon, look at certain areas for scuds. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, well, the Israelis were really, you know, saber rattling that they were going to come into yeah. the war if we didn't do something about the scuds. So um, and we said, look, we're looking for him. And so um that's one thing I, I'm not sure what, how much I can say that we kind of got tipped into where they thought they were. RF4s wanted, there were three, I call them lanes, three different lanes that if you took all the targets, you could do them in one big long trip, but there were three separate lanes. They wanted three different missions for each lane. And right. I said, I can do it right. in one. I just need gas. I'll do it in one. <laughs> and so I went on that too. And uh, I figured. It was going to be an hour and a half in country. It was like a busman's tour of Iraq, yeah. starting at the uh, southwestern border, flying straight up around El Qaim, but avoiding it, and then going straight down towards Baghdad and then coming back down. And that's when um, the second one I did, I was um, 
flying the last leg, and I hear the AWAC saying, any aircraft with unexpended ordnance, check in now. And I knew that, uh, I just, I always listened to everybody, so I wanted to know what was going on, but I, I knew there were 19 A7s wow. um, flying towards a target in, in central Iraq. And I knew by the timeline that they probably weren't, hadn't gotten there yet. And I had all the freaks of the squadron. So, and I knew who the strike lead was. So I called that squadron freak and asked for the skipper. And he came back very gruffly, Roger. And I had uh, check in on this freak now. And, uh, and he did what I said. He checked in and they diverted all of them. To, to, there were so many Iraqis on the ground trying to find the guys that were on the run, the Bravo two zero. And we could see it. I mean, there was like, you know, that was very unusual to see so much activity down there on the desert. Yeah. So I told the guy I was flying with, hey, let's stick around and let's photograph some of this because, uh, you know, we may be able to help. Something's going on. We didn't know what, but yeah. we knew something was going on down there. And, boy, it was like a field day. A-10s were showing up and going down there and strafing low. Um, but they, they were taking out a lot of those guys that were trying to chase them. And then so when I landed and I debriefed with the Intel guy and he goes, yeah, there's an SAS team. They've lost radio communications. They think they're on the run. So um, it wasn't until the book came out that I put two and two together. Wow. What wow. a story, Joe. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. The time in, that time fascinates me. And I, I, would you say the F-14 did uh, very well in that operation or in that, um, uh, you know, kind of environment? Well, I'll tell you... Um, I'll put in the words of the, our A6 skipper. The first night out, he got overflown by a uh, fox bat. And we're pretty sure as we piece this together over the years that that was the fox bat that shot down the F-18. Oh, and he was out man. there trying to, trying to lock up airplanes, but the ones that had really good, the DCM was working, um, it would break his lock. And he would come through the formation again. But uh, I think... The story was the F-18's uh, rearward DCM was uh, faulty or something. But uh, mm. but anyway, he um, that night afterwards, where we have something called uh, mid rats, where the food at, that they serve at midnight basically. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's usually you don't eat breakfast, you because your shift and you usually hit lunch, dinner, and the mid rats <laughs> if you can make those if you're not flying. So Midrats is really kind of a social thing for the aviators. We had our own wardroom up above, right below the uh, flight deck. The ship's company stayed down below the hangar deck. So that was like ours. And um, so I was in the chow line, and I'm the first Tomcat guy that the skipper sees. And he's a big guy. And he just clamped his hand on my shoulder and asked me if I knew how many burner rings a fox bat had. And I said... <laughs> I don't have a clue. And he goes, well, I do. And he says, I was looking up as he overflew me. And I remember when I went through the, uh, the top, top Gun senior officer course in 88, not that it matters when it was, but there was a big spirited debate in the class because it was all um, COXOs going to squadrons and air wing commanders. There was a couple of admirals in there. Um, and there was a big debate when they were talking about how the Tomcats would escort um, strikes and the yeah. A6 guys in this class that were one was a CAG and he fought really hard saying we don't want you near us your radar is going to tip them off um, they'll know we're going and if you want to do us a favor you'll go 50 miles to the west he was looking at this chart you'll go 50 miles to the west and 
and attract all the attention over there while we go in low. And um, so RA6 squadron and the Sarah guys were all kind of like, we don't need you around us, Tomcats. And, but this skipper said, I know what I said before, but uh, I want Tomcats to the left of me. I want Tomcats to the right of me. Says, if you don't shoot down any MiGs, that's fine with me. I just want you to keep them away. Because by then, it, everybody saw that wherever you pointed the, the Og-9 radar, it was like a flashlight in a yeah, yeah. dark room. And they just run away. I saw them on that first day. They, I was wow. like, wow, we're, we are going to get engaged. I could see so far with my radar. I saw the caps. I saw the Tomcats. We had we had just introduced a new piece of kit called the um, ASW-27 Charlie. It was a fighter-fighter data link. We all, always had this Link 4 Alpha that we could work with the E2 on in the ship. But what they did is they added the capability in the software that the Tomcats could t see each other. So I could see where the Tomcats were. I could see what their radars were doing. I could see their fuel states. I could hook them, see their fuel states. And I said, the, and you could tell when they commit missiles. So it's a marvelous, marvelous boost to situational yeah. awareness. And so I was watching this all go down. I could tell where the strike was because I could see all the Tomcats. And so all of a sudden, they start moving away. Just as to the point that missiles should be in the air, they start moving away. The two of them, we were coming from, you know, if this is a map. The Kennedy airplanes were coming like this, hitting this H2 airfield mm -hmm. and then the um, Sarah guys were down here at the airfield down this railroad road that you could see. We're down here doing this. So when these MiGs got pushed this way, two of them went down the road to escape to this airfield. Here comes the Sarah guys. Ah. And that's where those are the two guys that um, the Tomcats had already come through. And here's the F-18s that all of a sudden the E-2, their E-2, the AWACS didn't pick up on it and said, hey, on your nose. And um, that's when uh, Mark Fox and uh, Nick Mangillo, um, yeah. they were the wingmen. They, you know, the, the flight lead didn't pick up on because there's a lot of chatter on the radios. Yeah, I don't the know, imagine. Up on, but they, as wingmen, they were like, hey, there's something up there. And they went from, it's just a perfect McDonnell Douglas, as it was called back then, ad for, hey, I was in air to ground. I push a button. Now I'm in air to air. It's not that fast for the Tomcat, I can tell yeah. you that. <laughs> Absolutely. And post off missiles and rest is history. Awesome. It sounds like you've had a very interesting time over there and on that operation. But uh, can you briefly tell us, before we move on to the personal side uh, of, for yourself, um, what you got up to after your Desert Shield and your F-14 career? The, um, after... After Desert Storm, we came back and we originally start, we, um, started the cycle. Everybody went on leave for a little while, for about six weeks. And then we were sent to Rosie Rhodes to, uh, uh, to start another workup period. So um, I became the officer in charge of that. Had a lot of good flying down in Rosie Rhodes. And one day I go into um, – I'd always go in early because I was the officer in charge and look, looked at the message – and there's orders under the Pentagon. And I'm like, what's this? <laughs> so, because I thought I'd have probably at least another six months. Um, but uh, what happened was the admiral of our um, battle group in the Red Sea, the guy I had done all the reconnaissance work for, um, got orders aviation. 
And it turned out he's the same guy years ago that swore me in as a Lieutenant JG. I'd worked for him oh, before. Wow. And uh, one of the people that knew me as a Marine. And uh, and when he left the ship, I remember the change of command. We were going through the receiving line. He says, I'll be seeing you in Washington. And I thought he was just kidding. But I guess he wasn't. And um, <laughs> But he had, he sent me up there to be in charge of Navy photo reconnaissance. And uh, which kind of made sense. And um, and then when I finally showed up in November and I didn't have to be there till November, they um, I walked in and they said, well, the admiral changed his mind. I'm like, what? And I, I've been doing meetings. There was a, a big recap on photo reconnaissance at the Defense Intelligence Agency, especially about scud hunting. So I was participating in that, um, really getting to know that, that world. So I would be prepped for my job. And. And they said, well, no, you're now going to be in charge of air-to-air missiles. The guy in, wow. in charge of those got tapped um, for another assignment, and he's got to go. And the admiral said, what do we do? And he goes, oh, we'll put Hajo in there. He's been in the <laughs> building before because he knew I'd been in the building as a Marine. And I'd, I'd worked in the office that we we one of our, we were the uh, tech air analysts. So he knew I knew missiles. and. You know, I don't think I knew him as well as he thought I did, but um, <laughs> but I did. I got immersed in it, and uh, that was a fascinating uh, tour um, working for him. So yeah, I meant that I wrote the requirement for the AIM-9X Sidewinder, uh, the improved AMRAM, the joint helmet mount queuing system. Um, it uh, was really, really an involved tour, and I was there. Three years, and that's when uh, a company invited me to um, come work for them right at my 20-year point. And uh, I wasn't sure about it, but the um, admiral's chief of staff was an old Tomcat guy, and he goes, "What are you? You're only thinking about your next tour. This is to be the rest of your life. You need to. Yeah. You need to do this. This would be good for us if you did this." And um, so I ended up retiring in 1994, but then I. Um, Went to a company where I was supposed to build a course on how the Pentagon works, which I did. But when I walked in the door, they started talking to me about Lantern. I had done all the air, air missile integration. I was very, way more familiar with the Tomcat and the Hornet than I'd ever been in a squadron because I'd been immersed in it for three years yeah. in all these interface control working groups. So I knew about the stuff you had to do. And, and we started talking about how you could do it in an ad hoc way. Because I knew the budgeting process was not going to allow you to do a normal five-year development. You had to do something quick. And the guy in the company, Jim Willison, knew that he could convince Mark Marietta to pay for all the stuff that needed to be done in the cockpit. And he knew about ah, some boxes yeah. that had been built for air-to-ground originally, but they had some uh, unused connectors behind them. So there was a lot of little mir miracles in getting mm -hmm. the lantern on there. So I got totally immersed in... I still ended up working AIM-9X. I still ended up working Lantern and building this training course. So that, pretty, I mean, I'm still doing stuff that is are sort of the evolution of doing that. Passing from that, yeah. 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 Well, you've certainly had a great career, but you, you were also involved in uh, the sunset of the Tomcat in 2006. Can you tell us a bit about that? That was um, that was a labor of love and. Um, you know, as we knew it was approaching, we knew we wanted to do something spectacular. And I was able to, um, you know, have the time to devote to that. And we went and found Bad Fred Lewis because we wanted a flag officer. 
but there were some other guys, uh, Dog Doyle, who'd been an original Tomcat guy, and Natalie Bell, who was, you know, worked on the base and just, you know, they, we really got the who's who of people that knew how to get stuff done. Her husband, Taco. We had all these people that, you know, and I put a lot of, I expended, I told somebody, every creative ounce, you know, that I had in my body, I squeezed out to try to make yeah. that a memorable event and, uh, and plan it out so it wasn't. The, the wing wanted to just do uh, a change of command type thing, be in and out in 45 minutes, done. They, there was a real attitude like, Tomcat, you've had your time, you know, it's time for you to go. And um, and we said no. And that was good because Badford fought that for us. And then I just just poured in the creative stuff. I wanted to I wanted to have like a fighter fling thing where you had a golf tournament yes. and you had a gay run. And, and then we were able to get – we worked with Ward Carroll who – uh, was my relief at Approach Magazine and was working at military.com and, and I asked if he would sponsor um, a rock group or, you know, contribute. And uh, he, would, he had this lady with him. She goes, only if you're going to get somebody like Cheap Trick. And I said, you know what? <laughs> Let me make a phone call. And it turns out <laughs> Cheap Trick was willing to come. Oh, to, awesome. It uh, was willing to come to Morale, Welfare, and Rec. And so we got that set up for the concert, and Ward Carroll is a guitarist of some note. So we got him the backstage pass, and he's the only person that ever got to do a guest appearance with Cheap Trick. We, we produced posters and coins and set up a website, um, and uh, thanks, to, thanks to Roger Kemp, who was the fence check guy. The fence check guys just turned out for us and uh, helped us with the publications, and I really wanted to make it special. I think it was. At the end, but boy, was I worn out. <laughs> I was, oh, I can imagine. Uh, I made it look like a busy time. <laughs> so, Joe, we're going to go into uh, a bit of a more of a personal side now. So, just some questions to, so our viewers can get an insight into, you know, how you run and operate. So, Joe, do you have any hobbies? Photography. Photography, yes, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> I like riding bicycles, but uh, I, I like reading. I, I have a pretty big library. Of, the last time I did a good in-depth count, which was five years ago, I had 3,000 books. So oh my God. I know I've had at least 1,000 since then. Um, I love books. I, I, I've written several, so I, uh, you know, but I, I just immerse myself in that. Yeah. And yeah, obviously, I'm a massive fan of your, your photography. Uh, so can you tell us how you got into that and explain to our viewers how it works? And, uh, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, operations behind it, air to air on the ground. So it would be a great to get an insight into your workings. Well, I, um, I, like I said earlier, when I got to 102, they said, you're going to be a public affairs officer. And when I yeah. figured out, um, here we are, a Tomcat squadron. <laughs> have a single picture and squatters need pictures people write in for them when you do awards they have to you have to have one for the awards binder uh you want pictures on your wall mm -hmm. and i i didn't know anything about aerial photography um but we were a tarp squatter and yeah. that meant we had a uh tarps warrant officer his name's uh at that time was joe leo um, who was a very accomplished uh, combat photographer, as they call him. It's a special designation. They can go in with the SEALs. They, they are just really good photographers. And he'd come from Combat Camera and got commissioned. <coughs> and this was new for him being a fighter squadron. So, I, you know, because I was tired, we became good friends. And 
I asked him a lot of questions. But the biggest problem back then, I mean, today, uh, the people that grew up in the – I had this um, conversation with Rich Cooper at um, um, the uh, co-op. Yes, Rich, yeah. And uh, that people that grew up in the digital age don't can't really relate to this. But photography, besides investing in equipment, back then you had to invest in film and process. Yes, of course. And, and you couldn't just go anywhere. And there was no um, – there was a big photo lab on the ship, not just for all the tarps film. Those are huge processors, you know, the size of coffins. But they also had – the photo lab could do handheld, but it turned out that the ship had these little VIP books that they would give to visitors, and they wanted pictures of the airplanes, and they had to be current. So right. um, I kind of fell back into that. They wanted to know if we had any pictures. And I had this hand-me-down camera from my dad. It was a uh, Pentax K1000, I believe. And uh, so I was just, I didn't know what to do with aperture, shutter speed, any of that stuff. I knew how to do the ASA setting. But Joe taught me. And he taught me, you know, flight by flight, gave me some film to play with. And he'd, he'd go down to the ship's photo lab and talk to the photo officer. And, you know, and, but what happened is slowly but surely, I mean, I can remember him going through picture by picture tell me, why don't you try this, Dave? And, um, you know, I learned to compensate for all the light and then the, uh, the vibration in the airplane. The Tomcat vibrates like crazy because of the environmental control system is blowing yeah. like a, a hurricane. You can't even stand to have the helmet off without earplugs. It's so wow. loud. And the only thing louder is a bear engine. The bear <laughs> yeah, I've heard about that, yes. Could, yeah, so... Um, so I, you know, you normally would take a picture and put your elbow up on the rail, but that's where the the uh, tube was that blew all this air. So talking to him, and I started talking to some magazine editors, and Bob Lawson in particular out at Hook, and you know he talked about the vibration. So I I learned that I could cons- co- uh, compensate by driving my shutter speed uh, way up there, mm-hmm. uh, two thousand if I could get it. Um, yeah, or one, one, two thousand. We just call it two thousand, mm-hmm. or a thousand. So I, you know, and every time I did one of these things, I'd get my pictures would go up a little better, a little better, and yeah. um, you know, and then I realized there's a lot of glare in the canopy. So then I was taking some good pictures, and it was slow but sure. But I tell you, my later days, I was a lot more productive than I was in the early days because sometimes it, it was so frustrating because you'd fly. To, two hours and not have a single opportunity to take a picture, you know, one by one, sure, surely, um, you know, sooner or later, I, I finally, you know, got some decent pictures and that's what got me the notice of approach. And then I learned how to get photos published, which was a big step forward by working with the still photo branch and editors directly that my probability of getting published was higher than most people. Cause I knew how to work with them and I knew what they were looking for shooting verticals and um i talked to them before something and i know they were looking for something in particular and so i i've amassed at least a dozen magazine covers and then so when i got to desert storm i was ready to go i had a good relationship i was coming off being a magazine editor i in fact the photo officer didn't know how to get the pictures off the ship he said i don't have enough material and i said well so i contacted still photo and we got this huge box like a suitcase just full of all the film we could possibly want to shoot. So we were pushing stuff off every day. And a lot of that stuff ended up in the Navy uh, archives, which got pushed up the DOD archives, which got pushed into our national archives. So a lot of my pictures, if you search on my name, are in the national archives in high res. 
Um, so I got John Leadenhouse's photos up there and a few other guys that, that I knew they were shooting because it's, uh, you know, I, I like sharing my photography. I know every, a lot of the people, if they're listening to this, that's because they love airplanes. Absolutely. Not just yeah. the time. And they, and they would die to do what I got to do. And, you know, I pinched myself every day saying, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm very jealous of your career. And certainly, like, some of the F-14 pictures, you know, I've seen uh, very iconic. And I didn't even know that they were yours until someone, you know, mentioned it to me. So, yeah, you've certainly got a, a good portfolio of the F-14 there and of the aircraft. But uh, moving on a bit, so what aircraft would you have liked to have flown if you didn't uh, fly the F-14? Uh, overall time, even before my time? Any time, yep, yeah, uh, any time. I've always been a huge fan of the P-51 Mustang. I, I you know, read every story of every yeah. guy that flew them over Europe. But I would have been happy with a Corsair or a Hellcat, or where I would have loved to have been one of the Flying Tigers. I, you know, I read everything on the American Volunteer Group and <laughs> that I could get my hands on. So, hey, Joe, so where can we find, because you mentioned that you're an author, where can we find your books and yourself online to, you know, view your uh, brilliant photography? Um, I don't really um, promote them because they're all out of print now. The last one was the one I did with George Hall. Um, that's, uh, I think it's, it's right back here. Yep, we can, can see, can that, see yeah. that. Yep. So um, that was real, really a labor of love. I did that during the Tomcat Sunset. George Hall passed away uh, as we had done the, at um, Bob Lawson's house. We picked the final. You know, we kept necking it down from a thousand photos to five hundred to just getting it necked down. And yeah. um, he was going back to San Francisco, and he um, was feeling some pain in his chest, and uh, went and see the doctor, and they sent him to the hospital. And he didn't survive. Uh. And um, so, but all those books are out of print. So I just had somebody contact me last night. Uh, you can. Just type my name into Amazon, and they're on the secondary market. I know my first Tomcat book is called Fighter Country. Yeah. That was published in 92. It has a lot of my Desert Storm photography in it, and that's out there for like $32. So that wow. that's not a bad price. That's about what it was when it came out, I believe. Yeah. It was somewhere in there. So, I mean, there. Are, I had a plan with George Hall to go into a series of books and something more in uh, depth on the Tomcat, but – you know, I needed, I was relying on him as a synergistic relationship you know, or yeah. symbiotic. And um, they, uh, I was so devastated by that, that I, you know, it's been a number of years now. It's uh, yeah. been since 2006. Um, I, the new news, all the pictures you're seeing are all really fresh because I had so many outtakes where there was glare, where there was processing errors, all these things that you couldn't do anything with, with either slide film or print film. And a researcher came to see me a few years ago. It was uh, 2014. And he was looking for pictures from El Dorado Canyon. And, um, and someone told him I might have some. So he came to see me. He was local, it turned out. And he saw all these other pictures and he said, you know, you could probably fix these. And I said, you're kidding me. I mean, there were literally thousands of pictures that mm -hmm. I considered outtakes. He said, yeah. He says, in fact, I'll do you a favor. I'll scan them for you. I have an archival scanner, $8,000 Nikon scanner. Wow. We don't even get any more. And he, over months, over many months, started scanning my photos. So all these pictures you're seeing on Facebook are just now seeing the light of day. They're yeah. 
some older ones are the few select work. There's a ratio of like a one to a hundred, I think, of yeah. the actual number of photos. There's he scanned uh, about 800 pictures, and there's still more. He something broke on the scanner, so uh, yeah. And then I, I another think... guy. Oh, sorry, um, carry another on. Guy, yeah, another guy um, saw the uh, some of the flaws on the pictures and <coughs> volunteered. This guy Pete Chilelli. Yeah, um, I know him. He said, "Hey, I I think I can fix some of those if you'll give me access to the." The high res scan, so we we use Dropbox, and every once in a while he'll throw one up there, and uh, so it, it's a real delight for me because it's bringing back memories. Plus, I was like, wow, I don't even remember taking that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I see your feed every day, and it's always a joy to see when you put up a new picture, um, and you know, reworked by Peter as well. I mean, they're incredible. And, uh, well, I, I have to give him a shout out because he's just been phenomenal. Because I, yeah. I've tried, I've looked at Photoshop, I'm looking on that, and it's not that I don't have the patience. I'm, I'm like an old dog. That's it's hard <laughs> to learn that new trick. Absolutely, yeah, I, I see what you mean. But uh, yeah, so what I'll do is um, I'll be putting out a link to uh, try and get your books out, the ones you mentioned on Amazon. But uh, it's been an absolute joy to have you on. Hey, Joe, I oh, mean, hearing your story has been incredible. Uh, you've been on my list for a while, so it's uh, one tick for me. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can stay in contact and maybe get you on the show again for a live Q and A, which we've done with yeah. Bio, which you might have seen, and also Oki, or even so, Oki. Yeah, 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 yeah. So exactly. I know our viewers would love to see that, but uh, yeah, I just want to say a big thank you uh, for agreeing to do this. I, I do want to say when Oki talks about fighting other airplanes, he's not exaggerating. The guy tells it like it is. <laughs> it's hard to you know, I, I've, you know, I've been wrapped up in, in an airplane with them at six G's in trying to, you know, do the M1 maneuver, you know, to not black out. And he's got me laughing so hard, you know, just the way he just, I mean, he, he's rare that he can describe the fight. He can yeah. tell you what's going to happen, what is happening, you know, tells you what he was going to do. And it just works out just that way. Not there's a phone with some of the great guys that they, they don't talk that much about it. They can do it, but they're not someone that. He's very rare in that regard. That's why I really, I'm shouting out to him, but I, I thank you that you got him talking so everybody could see those insights. Absolutely brilliant. But uh, yeah, thanks again. Uh, hey, Joe. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can see you on the show very soon. And uh, yeah, hopefully our viewers will enjoy your story. All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Mike.